we're in a series this month entitled, um, But God. And uh, this series comes from the fact that, you know, over time as I, you know, was reading through the Bible, you know, and, and I'd read through things and I'd read about, you know, what man was doing, sinful man, you know, or things were happening or something was going on and it looked bad or gloomy. This phrase would pop up, but God. You know, things were going one way, but, but God would change all that and God would make things different or God would work. And I began to realize how important that phrase is. And it begins to describe the different characteristics of God, even though they may not be used per se, they're there. And, and you know, the most central characteristic of God is that he's holy, complete, perfect within himself. But all the characteristics of God began to emerge and they work together. And so what I began to realize, and the things that I'm sharing out of this series, uh, is it, simply this for the, for the whole series, is that we, you know, we, can, we can constantly be in sin against God. And yet, through all of that, God keeps calling us back to him. That God does things always, always has, always will, that keeps calling us back to him. Last week, we looked at grace. Today, we're going to look at power, his power. I mean, Acts chapter 13. And the thing that I want you to see from the message today is that God has power over everything and everyone. Now, that's a, a rather simple statement, maybe even simplistic, but we need to realize it. I'm not just saying that God has power or that he has overpower of people and things because that can leave it open that there is sometimes that God doesn't have enough power or does, he doesn't have power over all people or all things or all situations. I'm making this absolute statement that at all times and all points and all places, God has absolute power over everything he created. And that's either true or false. I mean, if there's any time God doesn't have power, that whole thing is false. We've got a world of problems. But is there a place that we can look at where we see the ultimate power aligned against God, where we see God demonstrate that his power is absolute? And that answer is yes. And that's where we come today. Now, when we come to the New Testament, and we're going to be in a passage today that the word power is not even used. You don't have to use a word for the concept to be there. For the, the reality is that all throughout the New Testament, believe in the old, but focus on the new, there's this struggle with power. And the religious leaders looked at Jesus, and that's where so much of this struggle is. And the religious leaders were constantly questioning Jesus about the power or the authority he had to do things. Now, in, in the New Testament, there's two fundamental concepts of power. One is authority, one is ability. The idea of, a, of authority comes from a Greek word, akousia, uh, which, which has the idea of the right to do something. For instance, a king has power to tax, tax us, you know, or tax people. Not as we don't have a king, but the king had power to tax. king had the power to go to war. It was his right to do that. And so that's a certain type of power, just the authority to make things happen. The other concept of power um, comes from the word dunamis, and it has the, the idea of ability, the raw power. And, and both of those words, most of the time in the New Testament, are just translated as power. And you kind of have to understand what's being used and when it's being used. And a great example of both of those working together and understanding in a conflict with God occurs in Mark chapter 2. Now, two years ago, I did a four-month-long four, week, four month long series on with you all of Mark. And in Mark chapter 2, there's a story that I actually, pre it was the last message I preached. I went through Mark, came back to this message because it really is in so many ways the key to understanding so much of the gospel confrontation of Jesus and the religious leaders. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus is teaching, and they bring this guy to Jesus who's paralyzed. 
And there's nothing they can do to heal him. I, I often say, you know, just if you, you know, spinal cord snaps, breaks, and he's paralyzed. Ain't nobody back then doing anything about that. But they bring him to Jesus because they believe Jesus can. They believe he has the power, the ability to do something, to heal him. Because he's healed in the past, and they think he can do this. And so he's in this house full of people, including a lot of religious leaders. And he looks at this man, and he says, your sins are forgiven. Which is all fine and good, but that's not why they brought him. <laughs> They're probably thinking, yeah, that's not really the issue right now. We want to heal this guy. But there's a bigger issue at stake, and the religious leaders are there, and they're constantly questioning the power and the authority of Jesus to act. And he knows that in their heart, they're saying, this guy can't do that because only God has the power to forgive sin. Only God can forgive people's sins. And this is a true statement. You and I can't forgive people's sins on behalf of God. We just can't do it. And so Jesus, knowing their heart, says, let me ask you this. Which is easier to say? Is it easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven, or pick up your mat and go home? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because you don't have to prove it. How do you prove their sins are or not forgiven? But if I say, pick up your mat and go home, well, you got to pick up your mat and go home. And so he says this, so that you will know the Son of Man, that is me, has authority on this earth, that I have the authority, the power, the authority to forgive sins, which only God can do, by the way. Only God can forgive sins. I have the same authority as God, which means I'm God. He looks at this guy and says, pick up your mat and go home. And he picked up his mat and he went home. And two great things happened that day. Jesus showed he had both the authority and the ability that only God has. The only question probably that is left in the mind of people is, who was going to fix the hole in the roof they made to drop that guy through? Because there's no indication they ever fixed that. You know, you're, guy, you're like, you're the homeowner. You're like, yeah, that's good. I got a homeowner and I don't have any insurance. What's going to happen? You know? But Jesus has the authority and the ability. He has the power that no one else has. Keep that in mind as we come to Acts chapter 13. Because power is what matters. In Acts chapter 13, there is a movement, a change going on in terms of several things. The book of Acts is a book that always has momentum, always has change going on. Um, last year in the summer, I preached the first two chapters of Acts. Brilliant, brilliant two chapters of stuff going on. It's amazing. And then I started in September just going through from chapter 3. I'm going to finish up in May in chapter 15. And what you see constantly is movement. You, sh you should read the book of Acts every year. I know some of you two weeks ago started a brand new reading plan. We're 14 days in. You've probably only missed three, four, maybe five days of that so far. You, know? you feel like you're doing okay, but you know you're in trouble. So whenever you actually decide to read something, I recommend you, at some point this year, I don't care where it is, read the book of Acts. You need to read the book of Acts every year. And in the book of Acts, Jesus says at the very beginning, the power of the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, and you're going to be on witnesses. You're going to start in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Then you're going to go to the rest of the world. And they've been doing good in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. Some of the world, yeah, they've been doing good. And they've been covering that. But a movement's about to take place. In, in chapter 11, the church at Antioch is introduced. Antioch in Syria, a few miles on, up the road from Israel. And this becomes, this church, the center of the modern, what they would call back, we, the modern mission movement may be an exaggeration of modern today, but from back then, the mission movement, that began our concept of what modern missions is, of going out and sending people. It wasn't Jerusalem. In fact, sometimes Jerusalem, even that church in Jerusalem, even kind of opposed. But it was here at Antioch, and in chapter 13, they set aside some guys. They set aside two guys in particular, Barnabas and a guy named Paul. 
to go and do this amazing thing, to go out. And they're going to go out finally for the first time in a systematic, intentional way. Others have gone out. Others have shared Jesus. They've gone to different parts of the world. Sure, absolutely. But not like this. This church at Antioch is going to begin this. And they're going to send out particularly one man with one mission and one message. The man is Paul. The mission is to reach the Gentiles all over the Roman world with the gospel. And the message is the cross. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He says, I preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says the cross, the cross is everything. It's the foolishness of the cross that people are saved. That was his message. And he's going to go. And in chapter 13, he's set aside. He begins to go his first journey of three through Asia Minor, what today is modern Turkey. And he begins to go. And he has a very organized strategy. He goes to the synagogue where the Jews are. And to them, he begins to preach. He begins with the Jewish people. Even though he's going to eventually go to the Gentiles, he begins with the Jewish people. He preaches to them. And then, regardless of what happened, he's going to go to the Gentiles. That's how it's going to work. And so in Acts chapter 13, that's what he does. And he ends up in another city called Antioch, Pisidian Antioch. There's multiple Antiochs. There's multiple Caesareas. A lot of cities had the same name. We just said in America, there's multiple, you know, there's two Las Vegases. You know, there's the one here and the real one in Nevada. And there's two San Antonios, the one here and the real one where I come from. I don't know how to say that. That sounds horrible when I put it that way, doesn't it? I guess it does. Sorry. I'll get over it. But, uh, you know, but you know what I mean. There's multi- I only know of one Las Cruces, though. That's good. I don't think there's any more. Maybe I'm wrong. Not in America. But multiple cities and towns come up. And so this particular Antioch is only a couple of hundred miles from where Saul grew up in Tarsus. Saul may have even been there. He may have even roamed that area. This may be his home. Turf. I mean, he may have come through that place. So this is an area maybe he knows. So he goes. And he begins to teach. And he begins to lay out strategy. He talks about Jesus. He talks about the history, you know, of, of the Old Testament people and how the prophets pointed to a Messiah, pointed to one who was going to come, all that stuff. And then we pick up in verse 26. Brothers, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of salvation has been sent. So he's in the synagogue and he says, brother, all of us, he says, those who are sons of Abraham, those who are Jews, and those who fear God, those are Gentiles who, who become worshipers of God, to all of you, a message of salvation has been sent, has been given. Now, the term message of salvation, or that phrase, message of salvation, matters. The word message comes from a Greek word, lagos. It's, it's an extremely important word. And in John 1, 1, that term logos is translated word. In the beginning was the word, word was with God, the word was God. In verse 14 said the word became flesh, the logos. So it's, it's the concept of existent reality. Here that exact same word is translated message. Context determines translation and intention all the time. You've got to know what the context is. And so it's, it's the, the, con- the concept of logos is just a word about something, a message. So you think about it in English, there's a word like theology. That the ending, ology, comes from logos, a word about God. Um, biology is a word about life. You know, psychology is a word about the soul. I mean, so it, it has this important understanding. And so Paul says, here is this a message. And it's an important message. It's about salvation. About, about how you are delivered from your sin to God. In the New Testament, the fundamental word for salvation is almost always connected with salvation from our sin towards God through Jesus Christ. So there's this message that's been given. This seems important. It started with us in fulfillment of all that our prophets said. You go back to the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, they just called it the scriptures that all points to this. 
Then in verse 27, he says this, For those, though, who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the declarations of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. So he says there's a message of salvation that goes back to our scriptures. And in that message of salvation, there's a pointing to the fact that he'll be rejected. He'll be rejected. This Messiah will be rejected by people, and they will kill this guy. He says, I want you to know that those that are in Jerusalem, the rulers that are there, the religious leaders, they never recognize Jesus as Messiah. The word recognize has the idea of knowledge. In other words, they were ignorant or they were agnostic. They didn't acknowledge him. This doesn't mean they didn't know about him. This isn't a lack of knowledge based on a lack of information. What it means is they rejected him. They knew that he fulfilled what was in our scriptures. How could they not? Look at all the miracles he did. He did hundreds and hundreds of miracles we don't even know about. Mark says that he, he healed mass numbers of people came to him. He may have done over a thousand, maybe more than that, miracles. Everybody knew what Jesus did. There was no secret to the religious leaders. You have this overwhelming evidence that he's God, that he's fulfilling everything in our scriptures as Messiah. And instead, you know what you guys did? You fulfilled the scriptures all right. You fulfilled the part that said we would reject him. And you did it by condemning him. You condemned this guy who did all these miracles, who in every way fulfilled everything in our scriptures. You condemned him to death. Verse 28 says, And even though they found no grounds to putting him to death, there was no reason. They asked Pilate that he be executed. Understand, not only does everything point to him to be the Messiah, but there was no reason for you to kill this guy. And you asked Pilate to do it. Now, sometimes, you know, Easter's coming. Easter's, you know, two and a half months away. Um, we'll start hearing a lot of messages. I have a series in, you know, in March going into Easter. But we hear people talk a lot about, you know, that only the Romans could put someone to death. Well, that's not totally true. The Jews could put people to death. In fact, they did. We see it in Acts. In Acts chapter 7, they stoned Stephen. They put him to death. In chapter 9, Paul had letters that allowed him to get people dragged them back to Jerusalem. They could put them to death. The Jews had a limited authority given by the Romans to put people to death of their own people, their own culture, if they committed blasphemy. And that's what they did. And they tried at times to get Jesus on this, and they couldn't. In fact, that's what they said he did, even though they said there's no evidence. But the truth is, they couldn't put Jesus to death because he was so popular. How could they take a guy that healed so many, that was beloved by the people, especially when he was in Galilee, they could never put him to death because a revolt would come and that would be a disaster. Besides that, what they really wanted Jesus to do was not simply to go away and die. They wanted to end any idea that he was a Messiah. And the way they had to do that was on the cross. And they couldn't put him on a cross. In fact, in Deuteronomy, we're told that anyone who dies on a tree is humiliated and disgraced. And that's what the cross was to them, a tree. And so they wanted not only him to die, they wanted him to be so disgraced that the Jews would have to reject him as Messiah. And they couldn't do it. But there was a guy who could. His name was Pilate. Because Pilate represented Rome, and Rome had power. It had two kinds of power. 
It had the ability and it had the authority. They had the authority to condemn someone to death. And they had the ability to make it happen. They went to Pilate. And verse 29 says this. And when they had carried out everything that was written concerning him, everything, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. In other words, they fulfilled all that was in our scriptures. And then they put him in that tomb. And they sealed it up and he was dead. Now understand the power that's at play here. Because it's an important understanding. There was first of all the power of Rome, the power of people, the authority and the ability to put him to death. And then secondly, there was the power of death. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15, he would write about the fact that death, after the resurrection of Jesus, he would say, death, where's your victory? Where's, where's your power? The power of death, the power of death is in the sting of sin. The power of death is all gone. That power has been removed. And so here you have this almost ultimate power. You have the ultimate power of Rome condemning him and pulling it off. And you have the power of death over Jesus. So at this point, it appears that the power of God is limited. That the power of God is not a power over everything. Until you get to verse 30. And verse 30 says, but God, but God, but God raised him from the dead. All the power of Rome and all the power of death. But God, but God raised him. It's an amazing thing when you think about it. That everything thrown at Jesus to make God powerless appeared to be victorious but failed because God had a power beyond all of theirs. And the demonstration of that power was the resurrection of Jesus. And how do we know that Jesus was actually raised? I'm actually going to preach a whole series of that in April. But in verse 31, Paul makes sure they understand. For many days, he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. He appeared to people for a long time, 40 days. The very ones who are now his witnesses to the people, the very people who witnessed about Jesus, including Paul, saw him alive. They are the witnesses of the resurrection. And the resurrection is the power of God over everything. Think about Jesus on this earth, the power he had, and the people that came to him. I mean, the people came to Jesus and he forgave their sin. He healed them of what was wrong with him. He helped them. He loved them. Three times Jesus raised someone back to life. Now, two of those occasions, they had just died and someone could argue they weren't really dead. But on the third occasion, it was Lazarus. He had been dead four days. He had been dead four days. No one has ever brought anyone back to life who has been completely dead for four days. Oh, I, don't, I know you can hook people up to machines and keep things going. I'm not talking about that. Talk about someone who's dead, who's wrapped up, who's buried. He brought him back to life. Who can do that? But God, a God who has power. Understand this. God is subject to no power but his own. There absolutely is no power greater than God. There is no power that God answers to. His power is greater than anything you can imagine. And when we speak of power, here's what I want you to see, that God's power involves both his authority and his ability. God has the authority to do that which he chooses. God has the ability 
to make it happen. That's a pretty cool power to have. I think that's a power we all wish we could have. Sometimes in our life we see powerless. And I get you. I, 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 there are times that I know I'm powerless. There are times in our life we seem helpless. And times that life just seems kind of hopeless. And when that happens, you, you, you kind of like to think that God would do something about it, right? You kind of think, well, God, I don't have the power, but, but you have power. Why don't you, God, just, I don't know, do something about it? Some of you at some point in your life, you know, maybe you've had family problems that were just too big to handle. Could be marriage, could be kids, could be whatever. I don't know. And maybe you're going through them right now, and you're, you can't do anything. You, you feel absolutely powerless to do anything about your family. But you know God has power to do something, but he's not doing it. And you're thinking, God, why aren't you doing something about this? Because you can't. And some of you, you know, maybe your job or your career, and you, you lose a really good job, a good paying job and a career, and all of a sudden you realize, I can't replace this money. I can't, do, I can't start a new career, and I can't do anything over. I'm powerless. God, why don't you do something? And he doesn't seem to do anything. And sometimes you face illness, or someone you care about faces illness, and say, God, you can do something. Why in the world don't you do anything? You know, back when Debbie was sick, there came a point when I knew, I mean, I just knew she was going to die. It wasn't a matter of if, if, it was a matter of when. Now, I know she, she never, ever thought that way, and I didn't, yeah, I mean, there just came a point, you know, I guess a couple of days left, she knew that it was time, but... I mean, her, her fight, her courage was amazing. But you just, it comes to a point you kind of knew. And so my prayers had to start changing. And so I started saying, God, you know and I know you have the power to make her better. God, you, you have that power. And I said to him, you can do this, God, if you want to. You know, I like that little manipulative phrase, if you want to. Kind of like, if you don't, you don't want to. Have you ever done that? I've done that. Sure, you've done that. We all do that. God, if you want to, do you want to? And, and, and I thought to him, God, you, you know how important she is to me. I was being a little selfish now. I wasn't thinking about her at all, but I, I need her. It's not, none of you are as important to me as her. Not, none of you. You're not as useful to me. I'd trade any and all of you for her back then. I, I'm just honest. I, I, I would have made that trade. He'd have said, pick one. I said, God, I'll pick a dozen. You, I, I'll keep you as many as you want. He said, God, you can do this if you want to. But he didn't heal her. Instead, God showed me a part of his power beyond healing, because that's not the only part of his power. He showed me, reminded me, David, I had the power to forgive all of her sins, which I did. And I have the power to save her, which I did. And I have the power to bring her to live with me for all eternity, which is ultimately what you want anyways, and that's what I did. And oh, by the way, David, I have the power to get you through all of this, which he does. And then I remembered that God doesn't always use his power to give me what I want. But God always uses his power to do what is best. God doesn't always use his power to give you and I what we want. But he always uses his power to give you and I what is best. And sometimes that's hard to see. And I'll be honest, sometimes that's hard to accept. 
Because I have this amazing tendency to think I know what is best. But we do that in life. And it's amazing how many people begin to question the power of God or doubt the power of God, even in churches. Even today, there are people, there'll be people who will preach, you'll say, well, you know, God doesn't have absolute power. There's, there's limits to God's power. There's limits to things what, what God can do. And I'm like, are you crazy? Are you absolutely out of your ever-loving mind to think that God lacks power? What do you think, God is trapped by his own creation? He created something he can't deal with? If you believe that, here's what you believe. You believe that God is powerless against the very world and people he created. Do you actually believe that God is powerless against you and the world he created? Do you believe that God is powerless? Because he's not. And I know he's not because God raised Jesus from the dead. And I know as you go through life sometimes, it seems like there's no power. And sometimes you wonder why God doesn't do the things you really think you need him to do. And it's hard to understand sometimes that God still does what is best even when we can't see it. Jesus, hours before the cross, was in the garden praying. I'm actually going to preach about this, I think, the first Sunday of, of March in my Easter series. And he's in the garden. I mean, this is intense prayer because he's going to the cross. He knows, you know, that's the will of God. He's going. And so he says, Father, listen, I'm going, to do, I'm going to do your will. I'm with you 100%. But if you want to take this cup from me, you can't. In other words, he's saying, God, if you want to, if you want to do something else to save them, that's all right. And he didn't. He didn't at all, even though Jesus kind of asked him. When they came to get Jesus, Judas and the guys, and Peter took off a sword and he cut the ear off, one of those guys ready to fight. Jesus healed the ear and he said, don't you guys understand right now if I want to? In other words, if I have the power, I have the ability and I have the authority, I can call thousands and thousands of angels to come and end this right now. But he didn't want to. And when he hung on the cross for you and me and died there, and they mocked him the whole time, made fun of him, laughed at him, and said he has the power, the ability to save people. He can't save himself. Why don't you come off that cross? You don't think there was a little bit of temptation to show them who had power? Oh, man. That would have been awesome, except for us. Because then he wouldn't have died for our sins. So he didn't do that. Because that's not what was best. And when they put him in that grave, and it looked like Rome had won, the greatest power in the world, and it looked like death had won, the ultimate power of life, God brought him back to life. Because that's what was best for you and me. Now here's what I want you to understand. That the power to raise Jesus and the power that, that exists there is the power that saves us. The power to raise Jesus is the power to save us. And it, get this, it is the same power that will get you through life. 
And when life seems hopeless, and it seems helpless, and your family's falling apart, and you're flat broke, and you're sick, and death is knocking at the door, do you understand that the power to raise Jesus is the power that will get you through all of that? It's the power of the resurrection. So I began the message saying that God has power over everything and everyone. And that is an absolute statement that's either true or false. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ shows us that it is absolutely true. And if it's true, he has the power over your life. He has the power to take your sin and to forgive it. The power to take your life that sometimes is crushed and to make it whole. The power to take all the things that happen that you don't want to happen. And in his own way, in his own time, he has the power to make all of that be absolutely what's best. Even though you and I don't understand it. So here's the thing. That's the kind of power you're going to have to trust. Because you really don't have any other options but to trust Jesus if you want to get through this life. You don't have any other options but to trust Jesus if you want things to make sense. You don't have any other option but to trust Jesus if you want God to get you where only God can take you. So why don't you trust him today with your life? Why don't you trust him with your problems? I'm going to be standing here in a minute, and there'll be some other people standing here also. And listen, maybe you want to come pray with us. Maybe there's just something you say, I don't know where else to turn. It's hopeless, and I'm helpless, and I'm powerless, and I don't think God's doing what I want. So can I just pray with you, and we'll pray with you. You can pray, and you can understand the power of God. Maybe some of you have sin in your life, and you want to pray for that forgiveness of sin. Come up here, and we'll pray with you. Maybe some of you just need to give your life to Jesus. That'd be a cool thing to do today because he has the power to save you. Whatever else happens today, just know this, that you can walk out of here today. You can walk out of this place with power. So, Father, thank you that even though I don't understand sometimes why life happens, and though I don't always get what I want, God, you always do what's best because you have this amazing power to do that. And no one or no thing can ever stop that power. No one, no person, no, no entity, no experience, nothing in life can ever stop your power. So it's to your power we appeal. And it's to you who has the power we trust that you would work in our life with power. Amen. Would you stand? You come.